Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. And he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds, and they all ate and were satisfied. Today's lesson from Matthew chapter 14 is regarded by many people as a high point in Jesus' public life and ministry. The Gospels tell us that at this moment, Jesus was riding a wave of unprecedented popularity. He had been going through the villages and towns of Galilee, preaching, teaching, performing marvelous miracles and healings. Wherever He went, the eyes of the blind were open. The lame leapt for joy. Lepers were cleansed. Demons were exorcised. And even the dead were raised to new life again. And the result was that Jesus' name and reputation had been spreading like wildfire. Galilee in the first century was a densely populated area, and at times crowds numbering well into the thousands followed Jesus on an almost daily basis. John's Gospel tells us that some of the people had become so enamored with Jesus, with His signs and His wonders, that they actually wanted to seize Him and forcibly make Him their king. To say that Jesus had become a celebrity would be putting it mildly. Jesus had actually achieved what we would call rock star status. It was a very exciting time. The enthusiasm was contagious, the atmosphere electric. And yet, and yet not everything in this picture was rosy and bright. For right alongside Jesus' growing popularity, we're told there was also a growing sense of opposition and hostility. The Jewish religious leaders, for instance, the scribes and the Pharisees, had come to resent Jesus' popularity with the crowds. And this resentment and jealousy had only grown with each passing day and each successive miracle. At this very time that Jesus was enjoying the adulation of the crowds, we're told that the scribes and the Pharisees were out there plotting His ultimate demise. And sadly, they were not alone. The secular leaders, that is to say the Herodians, the followers of King Herod, were also out to get Jesus. Herod had just recently ordered the death of John the Baptist, the Lord's own cousin. And his hatred of Jesus, whom John had declared to be the true king of the Jews, Jews bordered on the pathological. Charles Dickens' words in A Tale of Two Cities were never more apt. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. And this, I think, helps us to understand why it is then that today's gospel lesson begins on a somewhat somber note, with Jesus, verse 13, saying, getting into a boat and passing to the other side to a desolate place by Himself. passing to the other side to a desolate place by Himself. You know, fame and popularity can be heavy burdens to bear. I recently saw the new movie about the life of Elvis Presley, and this was a message that came home loud and clear. Think about Elvis for a moment. Here was a young man who had the world by the tail, he was the undisputed king of rock and roll, the top of the heap, the idol of millions. 
But the fame and popularity came with a heavy price for Elvis, didn't it? It meant that he was never alone. It meant that he was always on, always expected to perform. People were always demanding more of him. His fans always wanted more of him. His wife and child certainly needed more of him. And his manager, Colonel Tom Parker, always required more and more of him. And in the end, the whole thing proved absolutely exhausting to Elvis, absolutely depleting, always fighting to stay on top. It's no exaggeration to say that it wasn't just the booze and the drugs that destroyed Elvis, it was the weight of fame and popularity. Well, Jesus certainly understood the burden of fame and popularity. He understood that the crowds were always demanding more of him. He understood the unrealistic expectations that people were putting on him. He knew that the people always wanted more and more of his time and his energy. He understood the rising tide of opposition that was against him. And on top of all of this, the Gospels tell us that Jesus was also battling grief. Today's lesson begins with Jesus receiving the word that John the Baptist had just been murdered. And this is the reason we're told that he got into the boat and passed to the other side of the Sea of Galilee to get rest. We have to remember that Jesus is God Almighty, it's true, but we can't forget that Jesus is also God incarnate, God in the flesh. And it was this human part of Jesus that was absolutely spent, exhausted. And so Matthew tells us he got into the boat to go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee to escape the crowds, to a desolate place by himself, to be alone. But we all know that Jesus never got that much needed rest, did he? He never got that much deserved R and R because by the time he arrived on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, we're told the crowds were already there waiting for him. And thus the stage was set for one of the greatest of our Lord's miracles. It's worth noting that this feeding of the 5,000, this feeding of the multitude as it's sometimes called, is the only one of Jesus' miracles that is recorded in all four of the Gospels. Did you know that? which tells us that this was a miracle that made a profound impression upon the crowds. And I want to suggest to you today that this is a miracle that still has the power to make a profound impression on your life and mine today. This is still a miracle that has much for us to learn. Now, you may be wondering, how in the world can that be? We weren't even there on that occasion. What are the lessons that it holds for us? Well, I think the first one is obvious. It's that Jesus cares for people. He cares for people in need. You know, it's unfortunate, but the Lord's departure in the boat that day did not go unnoticed by the crowds. John's gospel tells us that the people continued to follow him because they had seen the signs that he had done on their sick. We have to remember that the first century was an age of primitive medicine. People didn't live, most of them, beyond the age of 35. Life was hard. Disease and illness were rampant. Many people never lived beyond the teenage years. 
And so to find somebody like Jesus who could come along and by the sheer touch of his hand restore a person to perfect wholeness, that was a marvelous thing. And so when these people saw Jesus get into the boat, leaving their region, they panicked. And seeing the direction that his boat was going, they were determined to intercept him. The River Jordan flows into the north end of the Sea of Galilee, but about two miles up that river, near the small town of Bethsaida, there was a ford. It was a nine-mile hike overland. But these people, as I said, were desperate for Jesus' healing touch, and so we're told they set off in haste. And sure enough, by the time that Jesus arrived on the opposite bank, we're told that the entire area was filling with people. Now, I want you to just pause for a moment and try to put yourselves in Jesus' shoes. <laughs> Here you are. You're, you're absolutely exhausted. You're mourning the loss of a loved one. You're trying to escape the crowds. And you look up, and what do you see but this enormous mass of sweaty, panting, needy humanity, and it's all coming toward you. How would you feel? Well, I think most of us would be rather irritated by the intrusion on our privacy. I think many of us would be put out, we would throw up our hands in frustration and disgust. And certainly Jesus could have done that. I mean, everybody deserves a break. Jesus couldn't be blamed if he had decided to tell the people to come back at a later time, or for that matter, if he had sent them away altogether. For weeks on end, he had been ministering to these people, preaching to them, teaching them, healing them, performing all kinds of signs and wonders in their midst. And to be perfectly honest with you, there hadn't been a great deal of gratitude either. In fact, one chapter earlier in this same gospel, we're told that Jesus had performed all these acts of mercy in his hometown of Nazareth, but because he said one thing that they didn't like in a sermon, they took him out to the brow of a hill with the intention of throwing him off. Let's face it, Jesus would have been perfectly within his rights if he had simply said, that's it. I'm done. Shop's closed. Doctor's out. Take an aspirin. Call me in a week. Or for that matter, don't call me at all. Jesus could have done that. But the point is that he didn't. As a matter of fact, Jesus did quite the opposite. Verse 14 says, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. He had compassion on them and all the other gospels record precisely the same response. Mark's version says that when Jesus saw the crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Luke's version says that he had compassion on them and he welcomed them. But I love the way Matthew puts it in today's text. The phrase that is translated, he had compassion, is actually based upon the Greek word splanchizomai. And it literally means to be moved in one's bowels or viscera. 
Now, that may sound rather grotesque to us, but you have to remember that in the ancient world, people believed that the seat of our emotions resided not in the heart, but in the stomach. We still talk that way today. When a young woman falls in love, we say that she has butterflies in her stomach. When a young man does something that he knows he shouldn't do, he feels a check in his gut. Well, that's the kind of response that Jesus had when he looked up. Instead of being put out, when he saw these people, we're told he was moved deeply. It was a physical kind of reaction. His stomach tightened. He had such compassion for them. It was the same kind of physical, compassionate response that he had at the tomb of his friend Lazarus, where he snorted like a horse and wept openly. It's the same kind of physical, compassionate response that Jesus had as he was ending the city in triumph, and he suddenly stopped and wept for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And brothers and sisters, it is the same kind of compassionate, physical response that Jesus still has for those who are desperately in need. You know, it's a sad commentary on the human condition, but let's be honest. Most of us don't like to be interrupted. Most of us don't appreciate intrusions into our privacy or our vacations. Most of us would prefer not to have to deal with the problem. You may not like to hear this, but it's, it's true. Your coworkers really don't worry about you. Now, they may not wish you harm, but they're really not concerned about your life. They're more concerned about their own lives. That's even true of your closest friends. They are more concerned with their own problems than they are with your problems. Now, they're glad to help you sort things out, provided that their own lives are sorted out first. But this gospel teaches us that there actually is one who is more concerned for your problems than he is for his own. There is one who is more concerned for your welfare than he is for his own. And that one is Jesus Christ. As exhausted, as depleted as he was, he had compassion on these people, and he still does. My friends, you can always take your problems to the Lord. You never have to worry about intruding. You never have to worry about disturbing Him. He is more than eager to hear your problems and your concerns. And here's something else. He's willing to hear all of your problems and concerns. You know, sometimes we think to ourselves, I can't possibly take my problems to the Lord because by comparison with my neighbor's problems, mine are so small. You'll notice that this text says that Jesus healed their sick. That is to say, all their sick. Those with serious illnesses, yes, terminal cancer, but also those with minor afflictions, with eczema. His grace was freely bestowed upon all without exception, and God's grace is still freely bestowed upon all without exception. It is His grace that can comfort you in your sorrows. 
It is his grace that can forgive your sins. It is his grace that can give you an altogether new lease on life. Today's hymn, the one we sang just a moment ago, put it so well. Jesus, thou art all compassion, pure, unbounded love thou art. The Apostle Peter, who was present on this occasion, would write years later in his first epistle, cast all your cares on him, for he cares for you. That's the first lesson we learn, that Jesus cares for people, especially people in need. But here's the second lesson. It's that when it comes to spiritual matters, when it comes to life in general, our resources are utterly inadequate. But God's provision and God's resources are more than adequate. When it comes to spiritual matters, when it comes to life, our resources will always be inadequate. But God's resources are more than adequate. You know, it was a big crowd that met Jesus that day by the Sea of Galilee. We refer to this as the feeding of the 5,000. But actually, if you look closely, you'll notice there were more than 5,000 people present that day. The last verse of today's reading says this, and those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children, which means there were 5,000 men plus women and children. This was an enormous crowd. Now, we don't know exactly how many people were there, but there were a lot. As I said, Galilee in the first century was a densely populated area. It was a small region. It was only about 15 miles from north to south, about 20 miles across, and yet in Jesus' day, it contained over 200 towns and villages, the smallest of which had a population of 15,000 people. So when we speak of Jesus and the multitude, that is no exaggeration. Now, here's the point. It would have taken Jesus a long time to minister to the needs of the sick people and that size of a crowd. As a matter of fact, it would have taken him all day, and indeed it did. And as the day wore on and the sun began to sink toward the horizon, the disciples started to get a little anxious. First of all, they were getting hungry, and they knew that the crowds were going to get hungry, and they realized that they're out in this desolate place and so they came to Jesus with a suggestion, one that seemed perfectly reasonable to them. You'll find it in verse 15. Now, when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place. The day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said to them, they need not go away you give them something to eat. You give them something to eat. We have a hard time understanding this because we're not accustomed to ever being in any place where there is no food available. 
We've got a supermarket or a convenience store on every corner, but that was not the way it was in the first century. So this was a reasonable suggestion. But Jesus said, you give them something to eat. Now, at first, that sounds rather shocking. What was Jesus doing? Putting all the burden on the disciples. But I don't think the disciples were the least bit surprised by this suggestion. In fact, I think they anticipated it because John's gospel tells us that they had already been canvassing the crowd in search of food. The only problem was they hadn't found much. The only thing they found was a little boy who had five loaves of bread and two fish. And mind you, when the gospel says five loaves of bread, it is not talking about five large French baguettes. It's talking about five little biscuits. And when it says two fish, it's not talking about wonderful rainbow trout. It's talking about two little pickled sardines. This was a child's snack. And yet it was the only thing that the disciples have been able to find as a consequence of their extensive foraging. And they said to Jesus, what is this among so many? But note the Lord's response. What does Jesus say? He says, bring them here to me. Jesus says, bring them here. You've only got five biscuits, I want you to bring them here. You've only got two sardines, I want you to bring them here. Whatever it is, however meager your resources, however pitiful your haul, I want you to bring it here to me. And that's when the miracle happens. We're told that Jesus took the five loaves of bread and the two fish, he gave thanks, and he broke off the pieces and gave them to the disciples to distribute to the crowds, and everyone ate and was satisfied. Moreover, there were 12 baskets full of the leftovers. Do you see what happened here? The disciples' resources were completely inadequate. But when they brought their inadequate resources and gave them to the Lord, what started out as a famine turned into a feast. Now, I said all four of the Gospels record this story. But each one of them gives us a little bit of insight into what was really happening. And I love the way Mark puts this particular portion. Mark in his gospel says that Jesus took the fish and the loaves and he gave thanks. But then it says that Jesus took the fish and the loaves and gave them to the disciples. Now the first part of that, he gave thanks is in what is known in Greek as the aorist tense. It means an action once completed, never repeated. But when he says he gave the fish and the loaves, all of a sudden Mark switches to what is known as the imperfect tense in Greek. It means a continuous action. So Jesus gave thanks once, but he gave the fish and the loaves continuously. What's Mark telling us? Mark is telling us that the miracle took place in Jesus' hands. The amount in his hands remained the same, five loaves of bread, two small fish. But somehow, as the Son of God broke off the pieces and distributed it, it was multiplied to such a degree that everyone had more than enough. Back in the 19th century, it became very fashionable to try and 
quote, demythologize the gospel. That is to take out the miraculous elements because people had a hard time with miracles. And so some suggested that what was really happening here in this story was that the people were simply being stingy. Everybody had brought enough food on this journey, but they were reluctant to share their food with those around them until this little boy came forward with his little lunch and shamed them. And then they were moved in their hearts, and everybody reached into their pocket and into their haversack and pulled out their lunch and shared it with those around them, and everybody was fed. So that the real miracle is that a stingy crowd became a generous crowd. Well, that's a very creative explanation, isn't it? I'll tell you something else. It's pure rot. It's absolute rubbish. There is nothing in the text to indicate that that's what was happening. No, all four of the Gospels record this story. Why? Because it's a real miracle, and it's a miracle that teaches us a very important lesson, namely that in life, your resources are always going to prove inadequate, folks. You can die with $100 million in the bank, but you will die because your resources will run out. Ah, but there is one whose resources are inexhaustible. And bring what little you have to him, place it in his hands, and you will discover that he can multiply it to eternal life. You may be sitting out there this morning and thinking to yourself, I'll be honest with you, I only have a little bit of faith. Mustard seed-sized faith. Jesus says, that's all right. Bring it here to me. Just as he said to the disciples, bring it here to me. Bring me your little mustard seed-sized faith, Jesus said. Put it in my hands, and I will multiply it so that you can move mountains. You may think to yourself, I only have a little bit of hope left. Life has been terrible. Jesus says, that's all right. Bring it here to me. What little hope you have, put it in my hands, and I will multiply it so that you can face any of life's challenges. You may be thinking to yourself, I only have a little bit of love. Jesus says, that's all right. Bring it here to me, your little bit of love, I will multiply it till your heart will fairly burst. In Jesus' hands, brothers and sisters, our little is always enough. It is always enough. Our resources will always run out. His will never run out. Charles Haddon Spurgeon that great English preacher of the 19th century was once reflecting on his ministry. He'd been preaching for 40 years. And he said, many a time I have stood before the congregation and thought to myself, I have neither fish nor loaf to set before the people. I have felt that way in my own life. 30 years in ministry, many a time I've thought I have neither fish nor loaf to set before the congregation. And yet Spurgeon said, every time I go back to the Word of God, lo and behold, I discover that I am a full-handed waiter at the Lord's banquet. Whatever your little is, take it and give it to the Lord, and He will multiply it and feed you till you're satisfied.
Here's one final lesson that this story teaches us, and it's this, that even though our resources are insufficient to the task, it nevertheless pleases the Lord to use us to feed others. Even though we have nothing to bring, it nevertheless pleases the Lord to use us to feed others. You'll notice in verse 19 that when the disciples brought their pitiful haul to the, to the Lord, just the five loaves and the two fish, Jesus took them and multiplied them, but he did what with them? He then gave them back to the disciples to distribute to the people. And I think that's a beautiful picture of the Christian life. You and I don't have anything to offer to the world, but we do have what the Lord has given us. And what has the Lord given us? The treasure of the gospel, which is an inexhaustible resource that can feed people till they want no more. Christianity is not a spectator sport. We are all expected to be in the game, and we are all expected to be involved in the feeding of the world with the truth of the gospel. Now, if you're sitting out there this morning and thinking to yourself, I really don't have anything to offer to the world in terms of the gospel, then it may very well be that you've never come to Christ yourself. And if that's the case, there's no shame. But if that is the case, come to Him today. Come to Him with your problems, your concerns, your fears, your worries, your doubts. Bring them to Christ. Cast them all on Him. He cares for you. And allow Him to take what little you have and multiply it. And then give it back to you. Fourfold, tenfold, a hundredfold that you might go forward and feed a hungry, starving world. My friends, there is no greater calling, no more blessed job in the world than to ourselves be satisfied with Jesus Christ and sent out into the world to feed others. Satisfied and sent. Let us pray. Father, we give you thanks and praise for this extraordinary miracle that took place there by the Sea of Galilee. We thank you that we can cast all our cares on your Son, Jesus Christ, our big cares, our small cares, because He cares for us. We thank you that you can take what little we have and turn it into enough Take the world's famine and use us to make it a feast. Thank you, Lord, that you choose to use us, to not leave us on the sidelines, but allow us to participate in your work. Grant us the grace to bring all that we have to you, that we may also go forward and share it with the world. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Amen.